verse 28 through 33, Ephesians 5. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Amanda. I'm going to call Tony Abatey up to the stage. Why? Because he has a wallet. And inside that wallet, he's told me that there is a piece of paper. And I want you to uh, take that piece of paper out. Yeah, keep your wallet out. Yeah, that's good. Uh, And describe that piece of paper to the people so that they know what you're looking at. Um, It's got a president on it. It does? Yes. United States of America. There's a lot of numbers. Okay. Um, The number one is very prominent. That is probably the most important number. Right. Number one. Yes. Okay. Now, I have something also in my wallet. It's just a piece of paper, right? But would you describe that one to the onlookers of the stage? Uh, Well, that's a different founding father. There you go. Um, Ben Franklin. Ben. Okay. All right. a one with some more zeros on it. More zeros, yes. Uh, one as opposed to? 100. 100, yeah. But at the end of the day, they're just pieces of paper, right? So guess, yeah. there's no reason that you should want my piece of paper, right? I don't know. If we trade, I'll take you to lunch. Um, <laughs> some of you don't know that this is my son-in-law. <laughs> And I've given him a lot of these already. Uh, So do you have something else? I I saw another piece of paper. It's not really a piece of paper in your wallet, but I saw like this. Yeah, it's actually a piece of plastic, but it's, at the end of the day, it's kind of a piece of paper, right? And what is that? Describe that to people out there. Well, this one has my picture on it, and it's, uh, it's my driver's license. Driver's license, yes. And... It's just a piece of paper. It just has some information on it. Yet, it's a pretty valuable piece of paper, right? Um, I'm actually, I think I could do a pretty good job of drawing you a new license. So here it is. You have a smiley face with shoulders. And there's your new license. I want to give that to you and give this to me. And I'm pretty sure that when and if, if, you ever get pulled over that you can just take this piece of paper and show it to the highway patrolman, they'll be fine. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. No, Tony, <laughs> no, that's not the way it works. No. What is the deal? Why is this piece of paper more valuable than that piece of paper? Why is that piece of paper more valuable than this piece of paper? Because of what it represents. Yeah, there's something behind it. Everybody give Tony a hand. Thank you very much, Tony. Um, the pieces of paper that were on display have promises behind them, um, promise of the government. 
that your dollar bill or your $100 bill is going to be worth something when you throw it on the counter for a loaf of bread. Um, a promise by the government that you can, because of this ID that we've issued you, you are who you say you are, and you can operate a vehicle, right? There's a promise behind, and it makes those pieces of paper much more than pieces of paper. Now, in my hand, I also have another piece of paper. I have a lot of these kind of pieces of paper because I get to marry people from time to time. And whenever I do, I have to sign and fill out the license and then I send it in. But before I do, I always make a copy because you never know, right? And so I have a bunch of uh, copies of marriage licenses in my desk. And this is one of them. And at the end of the day, it's just a piece of paper, right? You'll hear that from a lot of people in our society. Oh, marriage, oh, that's just a piece of paper, isn't it? But I want to suggest today that it's not just a piece of paper. That what happy couples know is that there's something behind this paper that makes it extremely, extremely valuable. That's what we were doing in these weeks together. We're discovering what happy couples know, and we're taking a look at Ephesians chapter 5. Did you know that just this last week, uh, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter celebrated 75 years of marriage? It makes them the longest ever presidential married couple. Now, most of us can't think past 75 minutes. Uh, they made it work for 75 years. Uh, I was talking to one of our ladies in the first service. She and her husband have been married 68 years. Um, I was talking to a new couple that has just joined us for the Pioneer Harvest. They're in town for the Pioneer Harvest yesterday. They live in Lewisburg. George and Betty have been married 51. Is that what I heard, heard you say? Um, how many of you have been married longer than 50 years? Would you, would you just stand? And would you let us say, yeah. There is something going on with marriages that last this long. What, what is it? On our first week together, we learned that happy couples know that you never marry the right person. Whoever you exchange rings with, they're never going to be perfect. And so what do we do with that? Well, we do for our spouse what Jesus did for the church. He gave himself up, okay? The second uh, week that we were together, we learned that self-centeredness is the cancer of marriage. And so to deal with that cancer, to cut it out, the way that happy couples navigate is that they treat their own self-centeredness as more serious than their spouse's. And when both of them are doing that, they fall in line with one another and they're successful over the long haul. Here's what we're gonna learn today. It's a very simple thought, but it's a thought that is often skipped over and we miss it. And overlooking it is kind of like owning a brand new Tesla Without a steering wheel, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun for just a little bit, okay? Um, here's the secret that happy couples know. Real love demands the permanence of promise. Real love demands the permanence of promise. They know that this isn't just a piece of paper, that there is a promise, a covenant behind it that makes it beyond measure when it comes to value. And so you know this intuitively too. This is, um, 
You watch it play out in every book that you read, in every movie that you watch, a lot of them, uh, in every third song that you hear on the radio. Um, when two people begin to fall in love, there's one thing that happens instinctually. They begin, get this, they begin to make promises to each other. Why do they do that? It's because they both love the way this relationship is. They don't want it to change. They want it to go on forever like this. And so if they don't write songs themselves, they at least claim some songs. And we could list a thousand songs that are love songs, right? But, but here's one uh, that might be uh, current uh, by John Legend. All of me loves all of you. You're my end and my beginning. Even when I lose, I'm winning. That's pretty good, right? Okay, maybe you're a little older. Okay, that's right. Sing with me because you older people will know this. And I will always you. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Whitney Houston, maybe, maybe that's your jam. Or maybe, you know, back in the 70s, Dolly Parton did the same thing. What is going on in songs like that? It's promising. These people are promising to each other that we want to keep the relationship the same. And there's, uh, it's nothing new. Thousands of years ago, uh, there's a book written, Song of Solomon. And this is what two lovers write to each other. Place me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. And in its day, it would have been, you know, um, Whitney Houston all over again. And what's going on there? These two people are falling in love, and so they're making promises to each other so that our love will never change. Our love is stronger than death. Love can burn forever. Rivers won't wash it away. Let's make our love like that. And they're making promises. And it's kind of a law of vows, so to speak. Whenever people fall in love, they say, I love you. And it says, it means I love you just like the fire burns in the future, but I will love you or right now, but in the future, I will love you. And many rivers can't wash our love away and it will always last. And here's what Paul says in our text in Ephesians chapter five. It's in the very middle of what was read. It's verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And what Paul does is he reaches back to Genesis chapter two, to the very beginning when God um, brings Eve to Adam and he institutes the very first marriage and he says to Adam, he says, this is the way it's gonna be for the rest of time. Men will leave their house. Women will leave the house of their childhood and they will be united together and they will hold fast to one another, to each other. And the word is, in the ESV, is hold fast. Uh, in other versions, it's being united together. The old word that was Cleave, we, they, they will cleave to one another. Uh, we don't use that word anymore, but it literally means to be glued to something. And so the, the foundation that Paul is operating from is a covenant, a covenant promise. And a covenant is when two people come together and they say, I will 
for the rest of my life. I will be here forever. And two people come together and they say, no matter what, forever. And they operate the relationship based on that promise. I will glue myself to you for a lifetime. And that's what we're doing in the promises of marriage. Maybe you've been to a wedding recently. Um, I want you to take yourself back there. And this is my little wedding book that I get to uh, do some weddings out of every once in a while. And if you're at a wedding that does fairly traditional things and they're not kind of, you know, rewriting the blueprint for marriage, then what you'll hear is two sets of questions. The first set of questions goes like this. Do you, husband or wife, take this man or woman whose hand you now hold to be your wedded spouse? Do you promise before God and these witnesses that you will be to them a true and devoted, devoted spouse, true to them in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, in prosperity and in adversity, and that forsaking all others, you will keep yourself to them and to them only as long as you both shall live? If so, say, I do. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the right answer on that day, right? Okay, but there's another question. And the question, the second question happens a little differently. I, in my ceremonies, I have the bride and the groom uh, join hands and they face each other. And they both repeat after me saying this, I take you to be my husband, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part, according to God's holy will. Have you ever thought about why there are two questions in a wedding ceremony like that? And the answer is that the first question is directed to God. Do you take this woman, this man, will you glue each yourself to the other in the eyes of God? And the second question in the, is then to each other. I will take you forever. And it's the glue that holds us together. That's what marriage vows are. It's kind of like tying ourselves to the mast. Maybe you are a student of Greek mythology. You've heard about Homer's Odyssey and Odysseus is, as he's sailing around the island of the sirens. Um, these sirens were half women, half birds that sang this such a song that was so compelling that it caused the sailors to steer their ships into the rocks and uh, their ships would run aground and they would all drown and die. And Odysseus said, I need to get, make it past this island and so the way I'm going to do that, but I also wanna hear the song, okay? So the way I'm gonna do that is I'm gonna put ear whack, I'm gonna put wax in my sailors' ears so that they can't hear the song, they can still steer the ship and then I'm going to have my sailors tie me to the mast of the ship. And Odysseus said to his sailors, once they tied him up, it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter how much I scream for you to untie me, don't untie me. In fact, tie me tighter to the mast. Tie me tighter to the mast. And the reason he was able to live and escape the sirens is because he was willing to glue himself to the mast. And that's what we're doing when we say, I will hold you and have you forever. We are gluing ourselves to each other. We're, we're, we're tying ourselves tighter to 
the mast. And I'll tell you what happens in a marriage like that is we hinted at it the very first week. There was a study that was done that says by far the majority of marriages are in fact happy. But there's a little chunk that maybe they would say, well, we're not, un- we're, we're not really happy. We're just you know, happy or maybe we're in crisis. And of that little chunk, two-thirds of those people will become happy. Two-thirds of those marriages will get back to a place where love is awesome if they will do one thing, if they will stay married. Within five years, if they just stay married, their marriage can get back to a happy place. And so the one thing that keeps marriages together during rough patches is the vows. They are what tie you to the mast until your mind clears, until you can understand things better because your feelings will fall for each other. And if it's just a piece of paper, if that's all that's going on here, then nobody's ever really tied themselves to the mast and you'll never survive the sirens that way. But if there's a promise, if there's a covenant, then the marriage will never die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned by the Nazis for preaching Jesus during the Nazi regime. And while he was in prison, he was asked to do the wedding of his niece and one of his good friends. And he wrote a sermon for their wedding, hoping to be able to do it. He never got to be able to preach the sermon at their wedding because he was never released from prison and he ended up dying there. But here's what he said to his niece. He was talking about the marriage covenant being stronger than even love. And he concludes this way. He says, as high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of marriage above the sanctity and rights and promise of love. And then he ends this way. It's not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. We think it's the opposite. We sing the love songs, baby, because we think it's love that's gonna keep our marriage going. It's absolutely not. It's the opposite. It's our marriage. It's our vows. It's our covenant that we make to each other that keep the love going. Marriage keeps love alive, and it's the promise that is the glue. Now, a little aside, just a sermon in a couple of sentences for some of you today. This doesn't mean, all of this talk of promises and covenants and lifelong, this doesn't mean that there aren't valid reasons for leaving a marriage. Scripture gives us valid reasons, and that's another sermon entirely. But what Paul is after is to get away from the idea that we can walk away, that we can make this just a casual relationship like any other, It takes serious things to cause this covenant to break up. I'm glued to another. And unless there's the most serious of circumstances, it should remain that way. Number two, some of you have come out of these broken circumstances. Uh, Divorce, you need to hear me, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is forgiveness in the name of Jesus for divorced people, just like there is forgiveness in the name of Jesus for me, a sinner. I am a sinner. And so let Jesus 
forgive you. Let him remake you. Let him reshape you. Let him remold you. Let him direct your relational steps from here because you can be whole again. Now, as we conclude today, I just want to give you some really practical uh, help. This is the truth that real love demands the permanence of promise. And so here's what happy couples do with that true statement. They live out of the promise by learning the way to love their spouse the best. They learn how to love their spouse the best. Not all love is equal. Some forms of love have more value than others. Um, Some forms of love are the $1 bill to you. Some are the $100 bill of you. And happy couples know that the specific way their spouse feels loved needs to be shown by them. And so on the questionnaire we handed out a few weeks ago, there were certain statements Uh, And we asked you to underline four or five of those statements that resonated with you the most. And by far, the most underlines we got was for this statement. My spouse needs to know that I feel most loved when. By far. And so we're going to tackle how that's possible today. Uh, Gary Chapman spent 12 years counseling married couples, and in that time, he worked to discover what each spouse needed and desired in order to feel loved. And so it became clear to him after going through all of these couples that what makes one person feel loved is not necessarily what will make another person feel loved. And so after all of his years of research, he found that whenever he asked a person, what makes you feel loved the most, he got about... Five, the responses that he got fell into about five different categories. And so he wrote a book, maybe some of you are familiar with it. It's called The Five Love Languages, okay? And language is a really good metaphor because if I say I love you to somebody and they don't speak English, then they're not going to understand a word that I've said. They're not going to understand my love. I'm trying to give them love, but they're not going to understand it. In order for me to get that across to them, I need to learn the language in which they speak so that that love message gets through. And it's the same in our marriages. We have to speak in a way that our spouse will understand when it comes to love. And most marriages aren't speaking the same language. And so Chapman writes about the five different love languages, and odds are you and your spouse aren't speaking the same one. And so understanding what yours is and what your spouse's is will enable you to maybe, for the very first time, communicate love effectively to one another. Now, some of you are not married here today, and I wanna tell you, they work just as effectively with your family, with your brother, with your sister, with your coworkers. Love languages are powerful. Okay, so there are five. Number one, words of affirmation. That's a love language that some of us speak. We are people who need vocal encouragement. We use words that build up. Um, We uh, are good with verbal compliments. And so we'll say, you look really sharp in that suit. Or uh, do you ever look nice in that dress? Wow, that's awesome. Uh, I really appreciate you washing the dishes last night. I really appreciate you taking the garbage out last night. Words of affirmation. Here's the second love language, quality time. Giving to another person your undivided attention. It's not 
sitting beside each other watching TV, but it is looking at each other, engaging one another and talking. Maybe it's a walk. Maybe it's some activity that you're doing together. Maybe you're going out to eat, uh, but it's just the two of, two of you. Maybe it's a weekend getaway to wherever, but it's togetherness where we're giving each other our full attention. We're giving each other lives of our moment, uh, moments of our lives that can never uh, be recovered. Okay, and that's a powerful emotional communicator of love. The third one is giving gifts, giving gifts. Thoughtfully chosen gifts um, speak volumes of love to some of us. Uh, a gift can be something, is something that you hold in your hand and you say, you know what, they were thinking of me. It's, uh, it's a little girl playing in the backyard and she picks a dandelion and what does she do with it? She takes it to mom right? And she gives the dandelion to mom. And mom doesn't care about the dandelion, but it's the thought, right? It's the gift. It's she was thinking of me. The gifts don't have to be expensive. They don't have to be uh, even weekly. They don't have to have a lot of monetary value because it doesn't matter. The monetary value is a secondary thing. It is the love behind the gift that matters. Here's number four, acts of service, acts of service, doing things that you know your spouse would like you to do. And so these are actions that you can take that speak louder than words. It's pleasing your spouse by serving them. It's expressing your love by doing things for them. It's cooking, it's cleaning, it's mowing, it's raking, it's feeding the fish, it's painting a bedroom. This is the same as Jesus bowing down at his disciples' feet and washing their feet, okay? Here's five, physical touch. Um, Human babies that are held and hugged and kissed develop healthier emotional lives than those who are left for long periods of time without any touch because touch has a way of communicating without ever saying anything. Um, If somebody slapped you across the face, that would communicate something, right? It also communicates something when they hug you. And if you are a speaker of this particular love language, a slap across the face or a hug communicates a hundred times more to you than to other people. Now, as we're talking about physical touch, I need all of the guys to register right here. I need you to raise your right hand and I need you to repeat after me. Okay, are you ready? Here we go. My love language... Got a few of you, okay? Let's, let's start one more time. My love language is not automatically physical touch. You can take your hands down. Okay, because of the way we're wired up as guys, we open a book like this and we think, oh, that's my love language. No, okay? Physical touch has a lot more to do with, think of it this way, If you are a person that reaches over and grabs your wife's hand at the closing prayer, then maybe your physical touch, okay? Now, some of you will know immediately what your primary language is. For others, it's not so easy, so I've included a few questions to help you uncover yours, and then a question that you can both ask each other to help each other as you uncover love languages. But here's the first question. What makes me feel love, most loved by my spouse? Or it's best actually asked negatively, and the way that it's negatively phrased is this. When my spouse fails to X, it hurts me deeply. 
And the opposite of what hurts you is probably your love language. So if it really hurts you that your spouse doesn't give you gifts all the time, or you wish they would give you even one gift, then maybe your love language is giving gifts, okay? Here's the second question. What have I most often requested of my spouse? Um, If you find yourself saying things like this, could we go on a weekend together? Or do you think we could just shut off TV and take a walk? Or maybe we could uh, go on a picnic. If you find yourself requesting those kind of quality time kind of activities, then maybe your love language is that. The thing that you request most often uh, is what will make you feel the most loved because that's your love language that you're speaking in. Here's number three. What, and this is maybe the best question to ask, okay? What do you do to try to express love to your spouse? If you're always complimenting your spouse, hoping that they will do that for you, then what that means is that your love language is words of affirmation. Uh, if you're always giving gifts to your spouse and you can't understand why they're not as excited as you are or why they don't return the favor, then guess what? Your love language is gifts and you're operating out of your primary love language, not theirs. So not theirs. So pay particular attention to what you naturally try to do for your spouse to show your love. And so that's your task this week to uh, find your own love language, ask those questions, then after you found your own, do that separately, then come together and there's a question that will work only after you have uh, found your own. Then you can come together and here's the question when you come back together. If you did that for me every week, or maybe it's an observation, it's not a question. If you did that for me every week, things would be different in our marriage. Now it's super important that you do that first step first that you go and you find your own love language, and then you come together and you ask, if, and you say, if you did that for me, things would be different in our marriage because we want love languages, not love lectures, okay? And if we do that first, then we're just nagging. That's what that's called, all right? So once we find out the way that we communicate love the best, our task is to brainstorm a handful of regular ways that we can give our spouse the love that they need in the language that they understand and that they will hear the best. And then execute those things. Give that specific kind of love to each other in deliberate ways every, every week. I'm gonna call the band up and I wanna go back to this piece of paper. Just remind you that it's not a piece of paper. There's a text in the text, before the text that we read in Ephesians chapter five. And it's at the end of chapter four. And here's what Paul writes about. Before he approaches this marriage thing where people are gluing themselves to each other, he says, I wanna write about a promise that God has made to you. Because of the cross, he says in Ephesians 4.30, The Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. What does that mean? Well, it's just like signing a marriage certificate. And that's what God has done 
for you and for me, because of the cross, God has signed that you are his. When we accepted Jesus as our savior, when we responded in faith and repentance and confession, we stepped into the baptistry waters, God said, because we responded, you're mine forever. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. God signed his name to you and you became his. But there's, there's more than that. It means something else because John, the apostle, writes later in the book of Revelation, he gets this glimpse of heaven and he says, you know what's in heaven? There are a lot of books in heaven. And there's, at the end of time, everybody's gonna stand before the throne of God and there's gonna be all these books that are opened and people will be judged based on what's in the books. How they live their lives is recorded there and they will be judged based on what's in the books. And then he says, but there's another book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in that book is just a list. It's just a list of names and it's the names of all the people who responded to Jesus in faith and repentance and confession and baptism and trusted in his sacrifice that his blood would cover their sin. And if you've done that, your name is in the book. Now I wanna ask you, when you get there, on that last day, when you're in front of the throne of God and that book of life, is opened. Will you or will God, either one, say, oh, it's just a piece of paper. It doesn't matter too much. It's no big deal. It's just a piece of paper. Nope. Not on your life. Why? Because there's a promise behind that piece of paper. The promise is the cross. The promise is because of what Jesus did, and you followed him and accepted that sacrifice, you are mine forever, for all of eternity. And that piece of paper, it's not just a piece of paper, it's my hope realized. It's God saying, you're mine. And it's me saying, God, I'm yours for eternity. And it's backed by the blood of Jesus. What if our marriages were founded with that kind of promise? That would make a difference every moment of my life. Father, we thank you that Jesus has given us this great promise. The promise that our sins are covered. That we are yours forever. Father, help us to be people that live out of that promise in joy and in love, promising to each other what you have promised to us. And in our marriages specifically, Lord, may we be glued together by this covenant, this vow, this promise that we've made to one another. I will be yours forever, come what may. I will stay true. Let us live up to that promise for 50 years, for 60 years, for 75 years, as long as you'll give us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
like you to stand. We're going to sing to end our service. Maybe you're not sure if your name is written in that book. And this would be the time that we can talk about that. I'll be up here as we sing.